The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I've noted before many times over the years that if it were not for the constraints of consecutive expository preaching, there are many passages I'd never look at to preach, that's for sure. And uh, I can guarantee you this would be one of them. Uh, This passage is incredibly um, challenging. Uh, The section itself is 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. I don't know that we'll get through the whole thing tonight. Some reason I doubt it, but who knows. So as I started um, in on this passage, which we've been looking at it in our, in our Greek class on Tuesdays, as I came to it today to get tonight ready, I was really glad that we had talked about translations in Sunday school because 1 Corinthians 7 25 through 40 is, uh, and I I say this respectfully, is a translational nightmare. Uh, It is incredibly difficult. And let me just show you, let me just give you an example of what I mean. Um, So, up on the screen, I have uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 36. Now, let me just say that 36 to 38 is incredibly challenging. 36 to 38, how a person sees that is basically determinative of how they see a number of the sections here. And, uh, and so you can see the New American Standard. Everybody read that. If any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, okay? Now, notice daughter is in italics, and so what does that mean? It's added by the translators to bring clarity. Let me just say, here's a great example where an addition does anything but bring clarity. If she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. Now, for the life of me, I have no idea what the New American Standard means there. Uh, Now, if we go to the NIV, which, as you know, over the years has not been my favorite, but today it is. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, oh, that's a little different, don't you think? (laughs) And if his passions are too strong, well, that's a little different than if she's past her youth, right? I mean, I don't know, it doesn't matter what planet you're from, those are two different things. And he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he is not sinning. Notice, they should get married. What's the difference with the NAS there? Let her marry, right? And again, that's different, right? Well, not to be outdone. So the ESV, I put the ESV in to honor all of those who have jumped ship to the ESV. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, all right? If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So that's actually somewhat similar to the NIV, 
But uh, this is perhaps my favorite, the New English Bible. But if a man has a partner in celibacy, (laughs) and he feels he's not behaving properly toward her, if that is his instincts are too strong for him, and something must be done, He may do as he pleases. There's nothing wrong in it. Let them marry. Well, that kind of gives you a little bit of an insight into what we're dealing with once we get to this passage. Um, The passage is incredibly challenging. Um, There are three primary views about the identity of the virgins. Now, the, the virgins are not the only ones addressed in this section, but they're, they're, they are the primary emphasis. And so there are three views regarding the identity of the virgins mentioned, and each view has problems, all right? Um, none of the views are actually free from difficulty. The first view, which is, actually has the longest um, tradition in the church, is, is actually the New American Standard view, that is, that the virgins are, um, the emphasis is on virgins who are daughters to fathers. And so when you get down to 36, then the emphasis then falls on the father's role, all right? Um, We'll talk a little bit about that when we get to 36. Let me just say that I think that that uh, view is, is just highly implausible, and one of the reasons is, is because fathers are not mentioned throughout the entirety of the text. And in fact, fathers are not mentioned in the section where fathers are supposed to be mentioned in the text, which should be somewhat problematic. The second view is that what Paul's talking about when he's talking about virgins is both men and women who have entered into uh, a, quote, spiritual marriage, which would be a, let's say, a celibate marriage, um, which I think is a skewed view of, of spiritual. But anyway, the idea is, and, and we've seen that this, this may have been going on in Corinth, but the idea is, is that two people are married and now they think that they're so spiritual that sexual intimacy has no longer any place in the marriage because that's not what spiritual people, that's not what Holy Spirit people do. That's only what people of the world do. So people that are in celibate marriages, all right, not because of accidents or other forms of inability. Um, the third view is that the virgins in view are, are either um, betrothed or engaged women, all right? And I think that that is the best explanation of the text. Now, there are still problems, there are still issues that come up. But I think that that ends up being, in a sense, the best, and we'll see that as we go. But even, even if we kind of settle on, on, on the identity of, of who the virgins are that Paul is addressing, the passage is filled with all kinds of other exegetical knots that are incredibly hard to untie. For instance, in this passage, there are if I remember correctly, counted no less than six words that are only used here in the New Testament. Now, let me just explain why that is a challenge. Um, 
the, the technical term for a word that's only used once is, believe it or not, for the sake of clarity, it's called a hopox legomenon. And hopox, hopox means once, legomenon means um, said or spoken. So the problem is, is that we know the meanings of words by observing their usages, okay? So the more usage, the actually the better sense of the semantic range of the word that we have. You have a word that's only used once, you have no larger frame of reference other than the immediate context in which it's used. And sometimes this can form a real challenge. And, uh, and so here, there is a high concentration of words that are only used once, You go through the passage, Paul talks in verse 26 about this present distress, and you have to ask yourself, so historically, what is the present distress? At the end of the day, here's the answer, we don't know. Um, What does Paul mean when he gets down to 29 to 31 and says, if you have a wife, you should live as if you didn't? Isn't he actually saying the very opposite at the beginning, that each man is to have his wife and each husband is to have Uh, each husband is to have his own wife and each wife is to have her own husband. Um, Verse 6, obviously, 36, we just looked at, that's incredibly challenging. Um, Verse 37, which we didn't look at, uh, Paul talks about keeping his virgin. What does that even mean? And uh, most of the translations actually uh, convolute the text and make it even more difficult. And by the way, the list could go on on all the difficulties in this passage. Um, But there are a few things that help us a little bit. Three times in the text, Paul explicitly tells the Corinthians why he's giving this advice. All right? So, if you have... Three times where Paul says, this is why I'm telling you this. That's pretty good, right? Uh, the first one is in verse 28. So let's take a look at that real quick. And we'll, we'll read the passage in chunks. Verse 28, Paul says, But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And here, here it is. I'm trying to spare you. I'm trying to spare you. So (laughs) some of you are like, can you just get to it? I want to hear why I should have been spared. Um, This is a motive for Paul writing this. I'm trying to spare you. Uh, Verse 32. Paul says, but I want you to be free from concern. There's a second reason why Paul writes this section. I want you to be free from concern. Verse 35 gives us the third. Paul says, This I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I actually think that the uh, New Living Translation does a good job here I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. So Paul is trying to spare people. 
He is writing to make sure that they're free from concern, and he is writing to help them to do what is ever, uh, whatever maximizes their ability to serve the Lord without distraction. All right? So that's the first thing. It kind of gives us a little bit of a, a direction of what Paul is doing and why he's saying what he's saying. The second thing is that there's an emphasis in the text that falls on the difficulties and the brevity of this present life. Okay? Now, I, I would say that it is, it is this emphasis that, in a sense, gives us probably the best framework to think about what Paul is, is talking about. So, for instance, verse 26, he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. Now, again, we don't know exactly what that means, but, but you have to understand that what Paul's doing is he's saying, what I'm telling you, I'm telling you in light of this present distress. So you have that. Then verse 28 Yet such, that is those who are married, will have trouble in this life. ESV, worldly troubles. Uh, New English translation, difficult circumstances. All right? So there's present distress. Those who are married are going to have trouble in this life. Verse 29, uh, notice Paul says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. Now, when Paul says the time has been shortened, he's talking about this present age in which we live. We'll, we'll get to this sooner or later. Um, and so that is a, um, we would say that is an eschatological statement. This present time has been shortened. It's been compressed, right? So it's marked by present difficulty, present trouble. It's marked by... Um, trouble in this life, worldly troubles, especially for the married. And then it is a time that's been shortened. And then finally, verse 31, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, then here's, here's the line, for the form of this world is passing away. And so what Paul's doing is, is Paul is, is, is setting up his, his argument, his advice, his counsel, in light of the fact that, that we are living, in, in a real sense, in the last days. That's a shortened period of time. That is, um, that is a time in which this world in which we live, this world itself is passing away. And it is this shortened, passing away world that is filled with troubles. And so everything that Paul says... He's going to say in that context. All right? So let's dig in. Let's read verses 25 through 31 to begin with. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife or to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife or from a woman? Do not seek a wife. 
But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as those they ha- as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is married is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And literally, he has been divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who's married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint or literally a noose upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So we'll stop reading there. Now, when Paul gets to this... um, section. He starts off with this little phrase, now concerning the virgins, all right? Now, if you remember this little expression, now concerning, Paul has already used that back in chapter 7, verse 1, where he wrote, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay? Now, this entire discussion throughout all of 1 Corinthians 7 is predicated upon that Corinthian slogan. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Better, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations. That was the mantra, that was the slogan, that was the bumper sticker, if you will, of the Corinthians. They were arguing that sexual relations was something to be avoided, even within marriage. Paul then addresses that throughout the whole. When he gets down to verse 25 and says, and now concerning, the little phrase is exactly the same as the one in 7.1. Which what that means is that Paul is, is either answering a direct question that the Corinthians could have raised, or Paul's dealing with an implication of something that the Corinthians raised. Because remember, the Corinthians wrote to Paul, in all likelihood, asking him a series of questions. And so, virgins. So here's another group that Paul is now addressing. So remember the groups he's addressed so far. He's addressed the married, right, in various forms. Married... Christian to Christian, married, uh, believer to unbeliever. He's also addressed the what we call the demarried, which would be those who are either widows, widowers, or who have been divorced. And now he gets to the virgins. Now, New American Standard, uh, NIV just says virgins. ESV says betrothed, which is, which is probably right here, But what they do is they kind of keep that as the translation all the way through, and I I think they make a mess of things later. Um, New English translation, people who have never been married. So the betrothed women uh, with their 
fiance. So here's, here's the way that I understand what Paul's talking about when he gets to the virgins, all right? That is, you had people in Corinth who were engaged to be married. They were betrothed to each other. You had the super spiritual elite in Corinth who were probably trying to pressure them not to go through with their marriages because to actually go into a marriage was an unholy thing. That's why you have Paul's comments back in 7, 12 to 14, 15. So it's very possible that Paul's addressing a very specific situation of people who had been betrothed and yet now there is this pressure for them to break off their engagements for the sake of remaining unmarried, which probably, according to the Corinthians, at least many of them, that was a superior spiritual state. So then Paul says, in the second part of verse 25, that he's not saying this by way of command from the Lord. In other words, Jesus never directly addressed this situation, but he's giving an opinion, a judgment, a decision. Now, What's interesting is that Paul begins this section by asserting, I'm giving you an opinion. Then he's going to qualify why my opinion counts, (laughs) all right? And then at the end, verse 40, he's going to say, basically, I've given you my opinion, but I think I have the Spirit of God, all right? So those are kind of bookends for um, framing up what is Paul's, let's just say it's his pastoral counsel. What's interesting is throughout this whole section, Paul does not one time appeal to his apostolic authority. He does not one time, in a sense, lay down some sort of of command or some sort of universal principle. What he does is he, he proceeds with pastoral wisdom and sensitivity. That's a good lesson in and of itself. Sometimes we want to make our opinions the thus saith the Lord. We want to make our opinions, we want to put them in the form of a command, right? Especially in counseling, it's very easy to just sort of become, um, you know, the um, the, uh, Lord Oracle and everything that proceeds from our mouth is, of course, a thus saith the Lord. Here, Paul, and of course, this is inspired scripture, but it is, it is, in a sense, inspired pastoral counsel that is both sensitive and wise. All right? And that's what Paul does. And so, here's how he kind of qualifies why his opinion counts for something. Mercy sufficient, mercy from the Lord sufficient to make me faithful. So here's what I'm giving you my opinion, but I'm giving my opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, has been made faithful. Okay? So the Lord Jesus has shown me mercy, it's as if he's saying, the Lord Jesus has shown me mercy in order to make me faithful, to make me trustworthy. So in other words, this is not just anybody's opinion, this is the Apostle Paul's opinion. This is Paul's counsel. This is counsel which actually comes from somebody who by the mercy of Christ had been made a faithful, trustworthy guide in the things of God. 
Verse 26, in view of the present distress, basically the principle is remain as is. Now, Paul says in verse 26, he makes his comment, he says, "Um, I think then, so this is... This is my opinion, but it's one who's trustworthy by God's mercy. I think then that it's good, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And so even in verse verse 26, I think it is good. This is Paul's judgment. This is Paul's um, uh, counsel. It's his advice. Now, the present distress... Um, Really hard to know exactly what Paul's talking about. Some, some translations, like the New English translations, say the impending crisis, so they make it as something that's still future, but that's coming, that sh- that's going to be happening soon. The idea of distress is the idea of um, pressure, a state of distress, state of trouble, state of calamity. Now, here's, here's the problem. It sounds like persecution, doesn't it? In this present distress. The problem is that historically, there is no persecution yet. And there's no persecution in Corinth. The Neronian persecutions aren't going to happen for another 12 years. So there's no systematic persecution of Christians going on, as if, as if Paul was saying, because of this incredible persecution that's happening, I'm just going to tell you, I don't think that you should get married. That, that is very uh, unlikely. The present distress could be, one, uh, the ordinary trials and suffering and pressures that we all face in this life. Um, or it could have been something more peculiar to the Corinthian church that we just simply don't know about. But here's one thing for sure. Paul thought that the end of the age had already dawned. Paul thought, Paul knew, that through many tribulations we must all enter the kingdom of God. And so, whatever the, whatever the specific situation, the fact is, is that Paul is going to make much of this idea of this present distress, and, and, and here's his conclusion, it's just good, in light, of, in, in light of the present distress, it's good for a man to remain as he is. Now, has Paul already hammered on this? Well, think back to last week, 17 to 24. That's been his whole uh, uh, emphasis is that remain in whatever state you were in. So if you were called to Christ while you were a slave, remain as a slave. If you were called as free, remain free. If you were called by circumcised, remain circumcised, uncircumcised, uncircumcised, so forth. In other words, remain as you are. And so Paul says, here's, here's, my, here's my point, is in light of, in light of the, the suffering, the oppression, the difficulties, the troubles, whatever those look like, my, my advice is that you should remain as you are. And then he says something that is really peculiar. And in fact, we were looking at this yesterday, and um, I think we uh, ended up kind of missing the boat. Notice he says, verse 27 Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Now, that just sounds on on the face of it like what? Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek a divorce. Are you released from a wife? 
That sounds like what? It sounds like you've been divorced. Do not seek a wife. Now, one of the problems is that this is one of those, the first line is one of those occasions where we have a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. Okay, Now, it's a common word outside the New Testament, but Paul uses different words for divorce, never uses this word for divorce. It is released. Okay? So, are you bound? And see, the problem also is that the, the, the Greek word gune, which is wife or woman. So, husbands, you want to be a little romantic tonight? Snuggle up and say, hey, gune. See how that works. Um, it can mean woman, generically, or wife. And so the passage is not as clear as it appears on the face of it. I would actually suggest that what's going on in verse 27 is that Paul, when he says, are you bound to a wife or a woman, do not seek release, I think that he's talking more in terms of that context that we've already discussed, the idea, are you under obligation to a woman? That is an obligation to be married. Okay. In other words, if, if, if what is happening at Corinth is this pressure for engaged people to become unengaged, then Paul has actually just said, here's what you need to do. You need to stay as you are, which what that means is if you are bound to a woman, then don't seek to be released from that. In other words, if you're engaged, if you're betrothed, don't seek to try to get out of it now. If you've gotten out of it, if you've already, if you've already broken that obligation, don't turn around and then try to seek another wife. Right? In other words, Paul's emphasizing remain as you are. You're engaged. Don't break it off. Have you broken it off? Don't turn around and try to find a new one. Now, Paul actually gives us both, uh, in both lines, present imperatives. The idea is this, is, this, this states a general rule. Now, the reason I think that that's true of verse 27 is because of verse 28. But if you marry, Actually, the but if you marry, verse 28, doesn't make much sense if what he's talking about of people who are already married or who are already divorced. Okay? But if you marry, you've not sinned. So in other words, if you stay in the engagement and end up getting married, that's not a sin. And if a virgin marries, she is not sinned. Okay? So in other words, hey, if, if, if you're in these obligations, you follow through, you end up being married, whether you're a man, whether you're a, a woman, the, the fact is, is that it's not a sin. Probably very contrary to what the Corinthians were saying, the spiritual elites. And then Paul says, but literally in, this, in the flesh you'll have trouble. Now, he doesn't mean flesh in the sense of the fallen part of our human nature. But what he is saying is such people, such people that go through and get married will have trouble in this life. 
Flesh here is not the fallen part, it's human existence. It's the same kind of flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20. The life I live in the flesh, that's not our fallenness, that's just human life. I live by faith in the Son of God, loved me, gave himself for me. So what Paul says here is, if you get married, it's good. In fact, later he's going to say that it's actually a good thing. Certainly not sin. But you need to understand that there's going to be trials and troubles and challenges, worldly trials, troubles, challenges. One of my primary goals in in premarital counseling is to um, break the romanticized, ideal little bubble that the couple has. So, So I normally start off with something like this. So, what is marriage? Adam, you might remember these questions. <laughs> what is marriage? Why do you want to get married? And then I say something like this. Over the next six sessions, you're probably not going to listen to me. Because you think that you are so in love that nobody's ever been in as love as you guys. And all of the things I'm going to talk to you about, your love is like the, 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 the love of, you know, it's going to conquer all. So all these problems you're talking about, okay, well, I'm sure Ariel's had to endure all that with you, but let me just tell you something. We love each other, and, and we've got the kind of love that will never suffer, will never have trouble, okay? Now, that is a pure delusion, okay? It is, right? Even, even the most happily married couples have trouble. Is that not true? This is why, and this isn't this isn't the, the the point of the of the message tonight. But this is why. It's because two people who are both fallen and are both, let's say, self-willed, and both are, let's say, self-interested are doing something which the Bible calls a mystery. I would suggest there's probably more than one reason why the Bible calls it a mystery. Of course, it is a mystery because it reflects Christ and the church, but it's probably also a mystery because when God makes the design for marriage, I'm sure that the angels were probably thinking, Lord, do you think this is really a good idea? I mean, granting the fall and, and, and the way that sinners are going to behave. I mean, do you really think it's a good idea to take two sinners and make them one? Because there's something that happens. 
when two people become one flesh, what do they bring into that one flesh relationship? Their own sin. Okay? Now, marriage is a sanctifying institution. Okay? But it is not a sanctifying institution necessarily for the reasons you might think it's a sanctifying institution. I mean, I would love to think that that my influence on Ariel over the years has been nothing but this positive, wonderful, warm, fuzzy, sanctifying effect to where she wakes up every morning and she says, not only do I love Jesus more than I did the day before, I love Brian more than I did the day before because I'm married to the most wonderful person on the planet, of course, next to the Lord Jesus. I don't really know that that's ever crossed her mind. Can we be selfish? Yes. Can we be stubborn? Oh, yes. By the way, just, you know, since she's not here, there's a Dominican form of stubbornness that is a peculiar form of stubbornness that I've yet to figure out. Um, can we be self-willed? Or do we go into that one flesh relationship just thinking to ourselves, you know what, I'm just going to give myself away. I'm not even going to worry about any reciprocation. If they, if they don't give themselves away to me, it's okay because I'm, I'm now married and marriage is so awesome that I'm just going to live to serve this person with absolutely everything within my heart and soul. You have to preach that to yourself pretty good before you start believing it. And you got to preach it to yourself for a long, long time and believe it for a long, long time before you ever even begin to do it with any kind of consistency, right? And so Paul makes this... this Paul's a realist, right? I mean, he's, he, who, who, who are the people he deals with? Newly converted people, Christians... He deals with people that are professing Christians, that are married. He knows all about the good and the bad and the ugly of marriage. And so here he simply says, so you know what? If you marry, it's, 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 just, it's not a sin. It's okay. It's good. But you need to understand that if that's what you do, you're entering into a, a, a time of trial and, and trouble that you would not otherwise have. So guess what? There have not been a few times where I've said to somebody, you know, I know that you want to be married so badly. But do you realize that the choice that you're about to make is going to bring you so much more misery than remaining in what you perceive to be the misery of an unmarried state? Better to make no choice than to make a bad choice, right? Oh, now to make a good choice, praise the Lord. But it's difficult. There are challenges. And so Paul says, listen, I'm trying to spare you from this. In light of these present trials, in light of these present troubles, I'm trying to spare you of this. 
So Gordon Fee, he makes his comment. He says, this kind of argument is, is advice, and it reflects pastoral concern for them, not principles that would make singleness a better option. That's one thing that you cannot do with this passage that I think is a huge mistake, and that is to think that Paul actually says that singleness is morally superior to marriage. Remember, going all the way back to the beginning, there is no moral superiority of either state. Both are good states and both are based on the gifts that God gives. So then Paul says something that's really curious. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, this is verse 29, so that from now on those who have wives should be as those as those that had none, and those who weep as those who didn't weep, and those who rejoice as they didn't rejoice, and those who buy as if they didn't possess, and those who use the world as if they didn't use make full use of it. So he says the time has been shortened. I take this to mean something like that because of Christ, because of his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit, the, the eschaton, the kingdom of God, has been inaugurated. And, and for Christians, what, it, what, what is always in view for us? The, the already has been inaugurated, and the not yet is always in view. The consummation is always in view. In Paul's language in in Romans 13, our redemption is closer now than when we first believed. So as the Christian Christian, um, lives their Christian life, they live it with a time frame that is truly otherworldly. The time has been shortened. That is, that is, in a real sense, the consummation is in view. It's closer to us than we realize. And for Paul, this is so important. For the Corinthians, they thought uh, more of the Spirit, more wisdom, more supernatural knowledge, all these things that make us super-duper elite Christians. And for Paul, for Paul, his thing is, is really what impacts the way that you live now is not thinking that you've reached some sort of spiritual plane that nobody else has. What really impacts your present life is your view of the future. Is that not true? The way that we view the future impacts the way that we live in the present. And so if we never think about heaven and we never think about the age to come and we never think about the resurrection and we never think about what it is going to be like to be face to face with Christ, if we never think about the glory that's going to be revealed, if that, if none of that future, which as Christians, you have to understand, we are people of the future. That's why any, any brand or form of Christianity that only focuses on your life right now is not Christian. Because this present life in this shortened age is filled with present trials. And so if you really do think that you are supposed to have your best life right now, you're actually forgetting something, and that is your best life, your perfect life, glory is yet to come. How in the world do we endure the tribulations of this life? I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, it's not 
by saying, I see a little bit of light at the end of this tunnel. That's not where the Christian draws their their comfort and their strength and their hope. There are, by the way, there are no promises that guarantee you a just ever-increasing happy life. God's wired us to be happy. God blesses us with happiness and joy in this life. But I think that, that if, if we are honest and we look at the, it, let's say we get down to our last day of life here on earth and we look back over this life that we've lived, do you not think that our sorrows on that day will in fact outweigh our joys? That's what this life is is like, and I don't want to be a bummer because God does give us joy and he does give us happiness and he gives us his, these blessings. But the fact is, is that they're all mixed in with, with sorrow, and sadness. And so Paul is going to say, listen, in, in, in light of the, the fact that this time has been compressed, in fact, in light of the fact that you are people of the future living in the present, he says this, from now on, from this point forward, and then he's going to say a bunch of stuff that sounds absolutely crazy. Now, you have to understand that what he's going to do is he's going to use a a series, um, he's going to use rhetoric is what he's going to do. He's going to give us a a, a series of these um, as if not kind of statements, and he's not going to deny the reality of any of the listed states that he gives us, but what he's going to do with each one of these things is he's going to show us that as people who live in a in, in this shortened time, we actually have a different kind of relationship and should deal differently with this present world. In other words, our, our relationship with this present world as people who live in this compressed time is to be profoundly different. We recognize that this world is temporal. We recognize that we're not to be controlled by the forms of this world. That's that's what we are. As future-oriented people, we don't live in this present world being conformed and dictated to by the forms of this world. So from now on, Paul says, those who have wives should be as those who had none. Now, do you think that what that means is that when I get home tonight, I walk in the door, turn on the Giants game, pray they're winning, Ha, ha, ha. And don't say a word to my wife because I'm going to say, Paul says those who are married should live as if they're not. Does that sound like a good idea? 
Does that even sound like what Paul is talking about in light of what he says at the beginning of the chapter? And the answer is, of course not. What does Paul mean? Paul is not giving in, by the way, to their super spiritualized view of what marriage should be, you know, sexless marriage, uh, celibate marriage, so forth. But Paul's not giving in to that for a second. But what he is saying is that even your marriage is so transformed by the future that it makes it different right now. Guess what? Marriage is not eternal. You know that? You know, actually, Jesus teaches us that. That in heaven, there's neither marrying nor being given in marriage. We will be like the angels. So, will you know your spouse? Well, of course. One time somebody asked Dr. J. Vernon McGee, will I know my loved ones when I'm in heaven? And Dr. McGee said, well, I know I'm here on earth and I don't expect to be stupider when I get to heaven. (laughs) You'll know your spouse, but guess what? That relationship will be different, right? In other words, let that reality impact the way that you live your marriage now. Is there a way to have worldly values in your marriage? Worldly goals? Worldly expectations? Absolutely. In fact, that's a drain on Christian marriages. Christian marriages operate on totally different principles than worldly marriages. And so Paul's saying, so, so let the future impact the present that if you're married, you're, you're living as if you're not, not in the sense of, you know, don't say hi, don't be intimate, don't cook for your husband, things like that. But he is saying that, that this world, this world which is passing away, doesn't dictate what your marriage is like. Then he says, those who weep as those As though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Now, what does Paul tell us in Romans 12, 15? Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. So do you really think that what Paul's saying is, so when you should be crying, buck up, become a stoic. When you should be joyful... Buck up, be a stoic, don't let anybody know, and that's not the point at all, okay? Paul says too much about joy and grief in other places for us to draw some kind of conclusion like that. I love the way David Garland puts it. He says, laughter and tears are not the last word. So the joy that you have in this compressed time, keep it in perspective, right? The tears that you have in this compressed time keep in perspective. In other words, let the future dictate what your joy and your grief look like right now, not this world. Okay? The world can dictate joy and grief in such a way that it, it, it only accentuates the fact that, that, that it is not what is lasting, 
God gives us joy in this life, but it's nothing compared to the joy of heaven. We mourn in this life. We, we, we shed tears in this life, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. The future shapes us, not the world. Then he says, those who buy as though they did not possess. I like this. Notice he doesn't say those who buy as those who didn't buy. Okay? It's not like you pay your money for your groceries and then, well, you buy as those who didn't buy and then you walk off and just leave everything behind. There's something that's significant about what he means here. Is those who did not possess. Is there buying and selling in this world? Right? Yeah. It's a part of life. You don't you actually don't get along in this present compressed age without buying and selling. But Paul says, well, you do it in a way that you don't look at these things as your possessions. Many years ago, I was reading uh, A.W. Tozer, Pursuit of God, chapter 2, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. He talks about Abraham in that chapter. talks about how wealthy Abraham was and how much Abraham had. And, and yet, once God called him to offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah, none of that stuff mattered. And then he makes a point, I should have looked up the quote, he made a point that Abraham, after that event, Abraham probably never looked at any of his possessions ever the same again. Abraham had his possessions. His possessions didn't have him. So you do your stuff in this world, your business, your buying, your selling, but you don't act like this is is all there is. And then he says, "Those those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, So, do you use this world? Do you? Yeah. Paul's not talking about, at this point, um, in a sense, fallen humanity world. He's just talking about this present life, this ordinary earthly life. Do you make use of it? And the answer is, of course. We all make use of it. But then he turns around and he says, but not as those who would make full use of it. A handbook on the Greek text says, those engrossing themselves in the world as though not soaking up all the world has to offer. In other words, you use the world and, and, and uh, I think Jason's going to be preaching on the unjust steward in uh, the afternoon this coming Sunday, which has a similar theme. And the idea is, is that you, you use this world, you use the things of this world, but you use them in a sense, in a way where you recognize not only their temporalness, you recognize their utility, you recognize them as a gift from God, but you don't so make full use of them that you act like this is all you have. And that's really hard for Christians that live where we live, isn't it? I think our Zambian brothers and sisters probably have a better grasp on this than we do. Because we all like our stuff. And so Paul says, in a sense, the form of this world is passing away. Here's why, here's why. 
It's not just a matter of the future, it's a matter of the present. And this present, the scheme, the, the form of this world is passing away. By the way, he's already said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. The rulers of this world are passing away. 1 John 2, 16. This world is doing what? Is passing away with its lusts. Okay? In other words, <laughs> we, we live in an age that is going to be no more. Come to grips with that. And so, Fee, once again, he says, those who follow as disciples of the risen Christ are marked by eternity. Therefore, they're not under the dominating power of the circumstances or conditions that dictate the existence of others. So whatever your state, whether you're married, whether you're unmarried, Paul's admonition to us, at least at this point, is you need to remember this life is full of trouble. In this world, Jesus tells us, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That's what this world is like. Through many tribulations, you enter the kingdom of God. It's not only been granted to you to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name. And so this is, this is part of this life. And so whatever your state, you have to recognize that in this life there are troubles, there are trials. And, and what we have to keep in mind is that because we are people who are looking for the age to come, it radically impacts whatever our present state is. Okay. So marriage, as wonderful as it is, is not the ultimate end. It's not the ultimate goal. It's not something we should so idolize that we either create really bad marriages or become incredibly discontent with an unmarried state. Paul says, listen, you got trouble? Ha! Ha! You think, I think Paul would say something like this. You think you got trouble? Read 2 Corinthians 6. Read 2 Corinthians 10. You can read my list of troubles. And I bet my troubles are bigger than your troubles. Okay. You got troubles? It's okay. It's okay. We're awaiting a new day. We're awaiting the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for difficult passages that make us think hard. And we commit ourselves to you. We pray that you would help us to be content. We pray that you'd help us to be strong. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have as our ultimate goal to live lives that are pleasing to you, to serve you. Those are the things that last. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.